Welcome to Brazen Education with Educator Barnes, a podcast with a focus on speaking your truth, being transparent to help others, and having no shame about it. Because we can't move forward until the truth is known. Well, welcome to Brazen Education. I am super excited today. Um, today, I have a special guest with me, Dr. Candicia Randolph, and she has authored a book called The Black American Church, Leadership, Dispensation, and Challenges. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Black church and education. Um, Dr. Randolph, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Educator Barnes. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book around black churches. That is the number one question I get. I don't think no matter what podcast I do, where I'm speaking, that that's always the question that I get. And so I almost feel like a broken record, but people are like, why are you writing about this? And some people are like, you're going to get flack if you write it. It's a critical analysis. It's not a fun field book. You know, it, it's not a warm and fuzzy book. And essentially, I did research four and a half years ago now um, on a particular organization. The, the organization was not related to the Black church or any church. However, as I analyzed the data of the organization and what it was, it was a leadership um, analysis and assessment. And as I analyzed the behaviors of the executive leadership persons in that particular organization, I realized when I was trying to get to the root cause of what their issues were, which is what I was consulting on, that their behaviors were behaviors I saw in the church. And me being me, I asked myself, I said, okay, well, did the behaviors that I'm seeing, because that particular organization was part of a larger organization. So it was a sector of it, a branch, a chapter, um, a cluster, you know, whatever words you want to use to define it. And I'm familiar with the larger organization. I said, I said, okay, did this here organization, which is a historically black organization, did it get its behaviors from the church? Did the church derive its behaviors from people in this organization or organizations like it? And by sheer chronology, I decided it had to be the church, or I guess I didn't decide it had to be the church. Time decided that because the first black church um, in America was founded in 1790, which is the AME church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And so the particular organization I was looking at, although they had a hundred plus year history in the U.S., that didn't, you know, supersede this 240 year history. Right. And so. Uh, getting the opportunity at the end of my doctorate program to do a project that had to do with leadership, um, leaders, you know, any, anything surrounding that particular subject matter. I said, well, I'm going to figure out where it came from, how it derived, how it affects the rest of society, because clearly it's affecting the rest of us. Um, I said, yeah, we're going to talk about these challenges. So what are some of the challenges that you found with leadership within the black church? And let me back it up um, for some people. How do you define the black church? So if you were to explain to somebody who hadn't heard the phrase the black church before, how do you define it and what's part of it? Because within Christianity, or there's different, like you, the AME, uh, the Church of God in Christ, 
Baptist, Missionary Baptist. So can you give us, because, you know, you and I both have been doctoral programs and you know one of the things they want you to do is define everything oh, you're talking about. Um, we define everything. So how would you define it before we actually talk about some of the um, leadership um, issues that you came across? Yep. And so that's actually on page one. That is the very first thing that I did um, before I put pen to paper, so to speak, was I gathered a definition. And because it was an academic manuscript, I knew the definition couldn't be my own. Right. It couldn't be, well, the black church is this or it's kind of like that. But it, it had to be what some justifiable entity had some factorial numbers that they could attribute that based on research was the black church. And so how the black church is defined by the Pew Research Center is historically, it's the historically seven black denominations or denominations that were started by black people and have remained you know, historically black um, that are rooted in the customs. It really has to do with so let me let me put a pause in where I'm going with that thought and say that those seven denominations are, as you said, the AME Church, CME, which stands for Christian Methodist Episcopal. There's AME Zion, which is African Methodist Episcopal Zion. Uh, as you mentioned, the Church of God in Christ, which is the largest global Black denomination. Um, the American, okay, so then here's where it gets tricky because the Baptist denomination used to be the largest until it fractioned. So you have the American Baptist, um, Baptist International, and you have the Progressive Baptist uh, denomination, and I think that's six, and then, the, no, three, four, five, yeah, that's seven. So that's how it's described. But in, in my definition, so to speak, so for the purposes of the book, I use that definition, but you also have other denominations like the PAW, the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, or the Holiness Church, that came out of the church of God in Christ. And so I think the way academia describes them is those are kind of lumped under coaching, right? But then you also have non-denominational. So you have churches that are black and have a lot of nuances of the black church, but they're non-denominational. And that's actually a category uh, in the book is non-denominational because I had several people participated in the interview who are non-denominational. So for the book purposes, that one. So we could throw that in as an eighth because it's an emerging denomination, so to speak. Um, and I actually found out from someone else that even though people are part of non-denominational churches, they still belong to like governing bodies or institutes. It, it was so weird to me because I'm like, well, if you don't want to be hampered by other people's rules and dogma, then why why are you in this group of things that's for non-denominational churches? Just like, wh why, why are we starting over, right? <laughs> um, but nevertheless, so that's how it's defined. Now, if you define the Black church in another way, so if I were to take away the different naming the different denominations that exist and look at the cultural and anthropological aspect of it, which really is the approach that I took, what separates the black church from another church, for instance, maybe a Catholic church that's predominantly black or an Anglican or Episcopal or Lutheran church that's predominantly black. The black church, first of all, is controlled by black people like the Catholic church, the Anglican church, the Episcopal church, the Lutheran church, the regular Methodist church. Black folks don't run that. They never have. They probably never will. <laughs> um, 
Simply put, the Black American church is the first institution erected by Africans and members of the African diaspora on American soul, soil, excuse me, that was specifically and explicitly, ooh, let's try that again, explicitly intended not just to fortify the spiritual needs of Black people, but also the cultural needs. And so that's why it's an anthropological entity. That's why it's a cultural entity. Um, it was created, I mean, I'm not trying to steal from uh, Damon, but for us, by us, it was the original FUBU, you know, and, and it still is. And so it's more than just a spiritual Mecca for Black people in America. It's a cultural Mecca. Hmm. Well, I am one of those people that attend a non-denominational church. Um, I've been in a missionary Baptist church, Baptist church, missionary Baptist church, now non-denominational. It's interesting what you said, because at my non-denominational church, we are part of things that are not non-denominational. Um, so that's very interesting. And even when I was at a missionary Baptist church, we would be at things that were just like solely Baptist as well. So it's, it's interesting how those intersect. Where would you put apostolic in the um, in your definition? I don't know if you uh, mentioned that one. I did not mention, but apostolic people are, so without being a historian, I tell people this all the time because a lot of people do ask, okay, especially people who aren't familiar with the church, well, what is the Black church house to find? I'm like, first of all, I'm not a theologian. I'm not, I do not have a doctorate in theology, ministry, divinity. I want to make that very clear. I'm a leadership subject matter expert, but apostolic people, so for whatever reason, Pew Research Center does not delineate like apostolic and Pentecostals, which I thought was interesting because as a black person who attends a black church, I was familiar with, you know, apostolic grace, apostolic church of God in Christ. But then you think about what I just said, apostolic church of God in Christ. Based on my research, the Holiness Church, uh, PAWs and apostolic drew originally from those who started the Kojic denomination. Gotcha. And so I think those who research them or those who are cataloging it rather, because it's not actually us who's doing the cataloging when you really think mm -hmm. about it, we're not cataloging ourselves. Wow. We're catalog, we're being cataloged by white people or white run institutions, um, which was another reason it was really important for me to not just write this manuscript to graduate, but to share it with the world, because there was a distinctive piece of literature that I ran across that stated in the critique of the Black church, all critiques that existed were external. So in mm -hmm. other words, it was white people critiquing us as opposed to us providing the critique. Those, those of us who are paying to keep the lights on and the doors open, and who have the building funds that may or may not have ever put up a new building. <laughs> we, you know, we, we were not critiquing ourselves. We weren't telling ourselves whether or not we were doing a good job. And if we were, we weren't being honest about it. And so I felt an academic responsibility that if, I'm, if there was going to ever be a holistic analyzation, a holistic critique, a holistic breakdown of how the leadership system works in the church, what those hiccups are, what those challenges are, what those deficiencies are, and then solutions to them. It ought to come from a black person. 
Well, you made a really good point because a lot of times when we look at research and I, I'm, both of you and I have researched before, you're trying to find research from the people or the situation that you're researching. And then you look and you look and you look at the references of the thing you found and you look at those references and you're like, is there not anything? And so a lot of times when we hear about adding to the body of research, that is a serious endeavor for black people because we have to tell our stories. So with that being said, uh, what did you find when it came to leadership in the black church? Because you mentioned about these churches splitting off because the church I attended as a child, that church split off and did their own little thing. And that's a very common thing. I feel in the black community that a church is just like, we're just going to agree to disagree. and separate. <laughs> So I wonder how that falls in with the leadership um, analysis. I'm going to let you tell a little bit about that. <laughs> so fractioning or factioning, or actually it would be both because a faction is a division of a larger group and a fraction means it's a part or to break away. And what happens is that these factions with inside of churches then fraction from the larger church. Um, that, you know, that would be an interesting book just for someone to write about that. I don't, no, please don't y'all send me an email when it's over because I've already got requests for part two of this one and to write about gender bias and discrimination. So please, nobody send me an email. Instant that message. gender don't bias call me. one would be a good one though. <laughs> I, I did not, I have not said no to it. Okay. I have said, just <laughs> let me finish. I, I have an endeavor that I really want to do next, which deals with the implications of culture and race on leadership as a whole. And I really, really need to birth that and get it out of my soul before I continue, you know, back down this path of leadership in the Black church, because I don't want, and it's not about being one-dimensional or even two-dimensional, but I have specific interest in uh, the mitigating effects of culture and race on leadership. Obviously, I wrote about the Black church, right? Because no one else did. But when you say, so when we're looking at those those factions and fractions, although I didn't study that specifically, uh, there is a chapter called Leadership Development Succession. And that's a term that I developed. Mm -hmm. And essentially what it combines is leadership succession management and leadership development. And for those who are unfamiliar with that topic, uh, succession management, succession essentially just means who's coming next in line. So who's going to be the next pastor? Who's going to be the next chair of the trustee board? Who's going to be the next musician, um, the next choir director or directress? Who's going to be the next head of the usher board? Who's going to be the next youth pastor, the next superintendent, the next Sunday school uh, director? Who's going to take over vacation Bible school when Sister Becky goes? Who's going to run the church kitchen ministry? Who's going to drive the van because Deacon Palmore is seven, you know, 95 years old and can't see anymore, right? All of those things are succession management issues. Leadership development is, a lot of people think it means developing a leader. That's leader development. Leadership development is when you have a pipeline of people within your organization who are ready to take on a leadership role at any given point, um, they're both able and willing to do that. Um, and so when it comes to executive leadership positions, the two have to go hand in hand. And, and so that's why I use the term. But when you look at the faction and the fraction that you're talking about and why, you know, I grew up and this church was called, oh, I almost said the name of my church. I don't want anybody to think I'm picking on them. So this church was called, you know, Church on the Hill Missionary Baptist Church. And then you go away to college and come back. And now you got Church on the Hill and Church at the bottom of the hill because somebody done got mad and went down here. 
sometimes that happens because of a lack of leadership development succession. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes we, well, there's two problems or three or four, really. One of the problems is we don't have succession management in place. We're not actively preparing for the next generation of leaders. We want to ride the leaders that we have until they're dead. And I use this every time I talk about leadership succession in, in these conversations and in these talks. You know, people want to make the pastor, they're the pastor either until they're dead or until they're on their deathbed. And it's time out for that. You know, if you want to be biblical and, and, and try to hit me with some religious theology, then that's great. The Bible says that old men are for war or are for counsel and young men are for war. Being pastor is warship. Mm -hmm. You should not. And I want to be clear. I said warship, W-A-R-S-H-I-P, not worship, W-O-R-S-H-I-P. It doesn't mean you throw away old people, right? Right. Not suggesting we throw away old people. We need our seasoned members. We need our older members. We need our younger members. But if that person is lying in the bed, hooked up to machines, mm -hmm. and instead of us trying to figure out what's going to happen if God calls them home or if they become incapacitated, if we're instead praying for, we, we ought to be praying but we ought to be praying and planning and we fail to plan. And so a lot of times in those fractional situations, you have that person who has been the pastor for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 85 years. And one of two things happens. They leave or they die. Mm -hmm. And once they die and or leave because the church itself has not established its footing, those persons are then attached to said pastor as opposed to the church or the mission and the vision and the values of the church or the ministry of the church. And so while you went away to college and it was the church on the hill, well, Pastor Gary, who had been pastor for 85 years, has gone to glory. And here's where the second part of it comes in. Not only did we not plan properly, we didn't develop leaders. And because we don't oftentimes do not run the church as any type of a business, we don't bid out contracts, meaning we don't do executive searches for pastors. We automatically elevate the kid or the nephew or the spiritual son or the person who's been standing by his side as his arm bearer for 30 years. And that's who we elevate to pastor instead of assessing if that person truly has the knowledge, skills, competencies, and abilities, which is another chapter in the book, to actually execute that role. And so what happens after that? Then, as you mentioned, you have that factional infraction split. Because typically you have those situations where, um, you know, I went to a church where the pastor got voted out um, because of some things that he did. And so after that, you have people, people get in their camps <laughs> of who they want to be the leader. And so in your research, how, I guess, what do you feel drives people to not make a leadership plan? Because you feel that like in, in corporate world, we feel it is logical that if you die tomorrow, they're going to fill your job. They have a plan to fill your job. They got your mm -hmm. job description on deck back there. The hit that's going to be up 
before your body gets cold. It's going to be up. So, like, why do you think in the black church there's a struggle with either wrapping our minds around this concept or not doing it? And I would argue many of the elders have lived through this multiple times. <laughs> uh, so, I guess, what did you find? Because I'm really curious about that. <laughs> um, so, one of the experts, I have three subject matter experts who I interviewed. Um, one person was Dr. Lerone Martin, who teaches, or at the time, he taught uh, politics and religion, um, African-American politics and religion at WashU, so Washington University in St. Louis. Um, Dr. Wayne Croft, who has a PhD and a doctorate in ministry and is a pastor of a Baptist church and also teaches uh, at a theological institute, and Dr. J. Drew Sheard, who's the presiding bishop of the Church of God in Christ. And so those were my three subject matter experts. And when I interviewed Dr. Croft, who was exceedingly gracious to me and talked to me for over two hours and to the point where his wife was like, I called him twice and was like, it's time to eat. <laughs> um, but he, you know, he brought up the point and he was really the starting point uh, of my research. And, and one thing that he stated was that the black church fails to treat the church like a business. And it fails in many times to acknowledge that the church is a business. And one thing that he said that sticks with me to this day is, he said, whether it's the business, whether you're operating it like a business, uh, you know, a, a for-profit business or not even for-profit, but because there are plenty of nonprofits that are incorporated and so they're businesses. He says, but whether you operate it like, you know, a for-profit business, so to speak, he said, or whether you look at it as we're in the business of saving souls, it's still a business. Mm. And it was the second part of that that really made me do what you just really said, mm, in the business of saving souls. And I was like, well, when you look at it that way, I mean, that is the biblical foundation of the church is to save souls, to feed the hungry, to take care of widows, right? Well, in order to do that, you have to have a plan. Yep. Like, we are not Jesus. We are not capable of turning five loaves of fish and uh, five loaves of bread and two fish to feed 5,000 men plus uncounted women and children. Mm -hmm. We don't have that type of power. We're not God. And so if we want to feed the hungry people in the community, you got to have a plan. Which means you have to have budgets. You have to have multiple type of budgets. You have to balance these budgets. You should be paying your taxes. You know, these are all conversations that, as you mentioned before, we've tended to skirt around. Um, you know, another thing that I found is that there are a lot of, and I found this out just by having conversations with, with people, and, and I did a questionnaire, so I had qualitative research, and I let people answer for themselves. So some people gave me simple answers like, no, well, I don't know. Some people gave me full paragraphs on some answers. And there are still many churches in, in, in the parts of the literature review, so to speak, that I was able to find. So what was already out there, most of the content about the Black church that exists is in chapters one and two. It's the, the anthropological, the ethnographic, the historical context of the church. 
Um, and, and so in chapters one and two, I talk about that because I got to get you to the rest of it. But then when you're looking like it, for instance, collaboration is one chapter. Most of the information about collaboration that exists talks about diabetes collaboration, collaborations from some mental health, um, but nothing else about that. There's no literature out there about collaboration for political activity, very little about political activities, socioeconomic activities. The only thing that you really find about political activities in the black church, you have to see during, in the context of what's out there is really in the context of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, there's no information about there about social justice or social impact uh, in the black church. Nobody's written about the black church as an organization. And for me, I'm like, why don't we seem to understand it's an organization? And as he said, whether it's in the, whether you operate as a for-profit business or a business for saving souls is still a business. And as you mentioned, if you don't have a business plan, what are we doing? Yeah. So a lot of times, let's take the civil rights movement. When you think about how people learn about the civil rights movement, you, you hear about the bombing at the church. You hear about people organizing at the church. And, and you also hear about like the importance of whether it's Sunday school education, vacation Bible school education, or just education in general, like the church kind of wrapping around. So what happened from like the civil rights movement to now where you seem to have black churches that are disconnected to schools, disconnected to education, and this, in my opinion, disconnected um, from um, learning because I'm reading the, um, a book, um, Cultivating Genius by Dr. Godi Muhammad. And at the beginning of her book, she talks about black literary societies and how it wasn't just about reading and writing, but it was about being critical thinking, acting, you know, uplifting each other um, and like it was a, a complete cycle. So I wonder like what in your research and, and how that intersects with leadership, how we kind of fell off and not supporting like the education of our children, whether that's spiritual education, moral education, or just education knowledge. And that was a really big question. <laughs> it is. And I have a research answer and I have a personal answer. So right. we're, we're, we're going to start with the research answer because this is about the book, right? So I'm going to try to keep, keep that in context according to the research and the data because I do have a section in the organizational structure and design chapter that talks about megachurches because there is budding research because megachurches came to prom into prominence. So the way the research categorize it, the, categorizes it came into prominence at the latter quarter of the 20th century. Now, I'm not going to say that's falsity, but I don't want people to confuse that with the fact that megachurches existed before then. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, like Pilgrim Baptist Church in Chicago, it's an older church. It is a church that is a megachurch, holds hundreds, thousands of people, right? Not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and some thousands of people. It was one of the churches that helped facilitate the great migration um, of Blacks from the North, from the South to the North during the Industrial Revolution. So you're looking at the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So I don't want people to be confused and think that mega churches didn't exist, or I don't want someone to listen to this and say, oh, well, I went to Pilgrim, or I went to this, and you know, it holds 1,500 people, which is a mega church. And so you're, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the literature says they came into prominence. So in other words, they became more popular in the latter quarter 
of the 20th century. And so we know that that means from 1980 to 2000, and they continue to grow. Mega churches that are affiliated with Black populations, such as New Birth, um, where Jamal Bryant is the pastor, or the Potter's House, although the Potter's House is interracial, it's still guided by Black men. The people in leadership are Black. When I look at the screens, I, I'm going to say at least 50% of the population is Black. Um, House of Hope in Chicago. You know, these are Bill Winston. Those are all mega churches that are Black. What the research tells us about that is as these churches begin to, to grow and come into prominence at the latter portion of the 20th century leading into the 21st century, is they were erected for two reasons, not just to hold more people, but they were erected outside of metropolitan areas. So you have a lot of churches that are mega churches that are not in centralized cities, a lot that are in suburban areas or the surrounding borders of the city because you needed room that wasn't already occupied. And the members of those church are persons who are typically of a higher education level. And so we've now gone from our storefront churches Mm -hmm. that were comprised of people who may have had a high school education, may not have had a high school education, to these multi-million and billion dollar properties where people are college graduates and have graduate degrees and terminal degrees. And so when you look at that growth pattern and when you look at that organizational develop pattern, development pattern, one might believe that because of the rise of the, the mega churches who are filled with more educated people, there's not a need or an educational gap to fill. Mm. That's the research progression part of it. The other side of the research, I, I just decided to go a different way with this answer. The other side of the research shows uh, in my chapter on collaboration, Ask the question, do you see, do you collaborate? Does your, does your church collaborate with other church? Another question says, does your church, one question was, does your church collaborate with other churches within its own denomination, outside of the denomination, and then with the community at large? And the resounding answers were like, well, you know, we do stuff at state conferences or no, the only time we see the, the overwhelming answer was the only time we see collaboration with the community is if it had to do around a rally or a march or voting. That was it, okay? And, and so essentially what the research was telling me is that we weren't meeting the community's needs. Mm. And so if we're not meeting the community's needs and there's an educational gap and or deficit, then we, we know why. We're not collaborating. We're more interested in running in, in, in running institutions or branches of a larger institution that are silos as instead of the communal paradigm that we used to exist with, right? And like you said, when people talk about the civil rights movement, they talk about the bombing at the church, they talk about, and even today, a lot of churches, black and white, are still used as polling places because A, they're safe places, but B, in the black community, 
you don't get they a lot of people say you don't get the black vote if you don't come by the church house. And so having a polling station at the church doesn't just give people a sense of safety. It gives a sense of inclusivity uh, as well as belonging. However, if we're not reaching back out to that same community outside the walls of voting on yesterday, except in, in my county, there was no voting um, at all on anything yesterday. But if we're not reaching back outside those confines, then we're failing to meet the needs of the community. And, you know, another theme that came through in the book was people felt the church had lost its prominence. And part of the reason it had lost its prominence is because it wasn't meeting the needs of the community. You know, contrary to popular belief, as wonderfully educated as we are, and I thank God every day for the four degrees that I have, and I wouldn't change them for the world or change my journey for the world. I'm not blind to the fact that every child from the south side of Chicago who looks like me, who came from, where, which is where I'm from, won't be afforded the same opportunities that I was or that I am. And so we do have to ask ourselves, <coughs> excuse me, that pivotal question of how do we go back and I'll reference a song to that old landmark? Mm. How do we go back to the place? And I'm not saying every church doesn't do it because there's plenty of churches that do do it. But for those that are don't and who aren't currently engaged in that community outreach and engagement in that corporate social responsibility, how do we go back and get back to the point where we're having tutoring sessions, where we are mentoring the kids and where there's a high school student paired with an elementary school student, um, college teens, are volunteering, there's a program that runs through my current church of existence. It's not run by the church, it's a separate organization, but the person who is the executive director of the organization is a minister at the church, and so they use the church. It's called Grade A Plus, and college students tutor um, elementary school students, and I think high school students as well, it's free of charge. Mm. But how do we get back to that point where we're doing that as a collective? Um, we, we have to remember when it comes to education in this country, especially higher education, education, and again, back to how I came up with the idea for the book, the, the Black educational system came from the church. The first Black banks came from the church. The first Black insurance agencies came from the church. Our responsibility isn't just in salvation. It would be nice if it was, but as for the black church, that's not our only job. It never was and it never ever will be. We have a more dense purpose and that purpose is, is even more important today than it was 40 years ago. So in your research, when it comes to schools, could I hear what you're saying about like the programs that churches could offer because Every single church I've been a part of, and I've even benefited from it, they've had a scholarship fund for students to go to college. But I also think about the year that I got the scholarship fund. I was not the only person who was a senior, but I was the only person that got to the step that got accepted into college um, that year. So I got my check that was raised. And when I was at college, it just bothered me. In the back of my mind, it's like, 
we say we want kids to go to college. You know, we want to at least have the opportunity. But then what did we do <laughs> as the, the entity to ensure that everyone gets there? Because regardless, if you look at the data, regardless of your parents' background, whether they're you're below poverty, at poverty, above poverty, there are black kids failing across all um, socioeconomic levels. Um, I know so many people uh, um, that, you know, went to college like I did and they're like, my kid cannot read and they're struggling. They can't do math and I don't know what else to do. Um, so do you feel like the next step would be, uh, when I think about the Catholic church, right? Catholic church are infamous for having their schools. Do you think the next step for the black church is to kind of replicate that and have their own schools? Or is it more like, no, we need to fix this leadership succession piece first and then come back to that. And maybe it's a both and. It's an all of the above and, and not to take anything. Well, first of all, to applaud the Catholic school people. I am a product of Catholic school. OK, um, and. Those options are great. Now, that's not to say that every Catholic school is great, because unfortunately, the story with Blacks in America is the same. Mm. There are some Catholic schools that are wonderful, and then there are some Catholic schools that are in our dejected and abandoned and unattended to and uncared for neighborhoods. And because that church has not gone under yet, and because the archdiocese hasn't chosen to close the church or the school, or maybe the church is functioning, but the school is barely hanging on because the archdiocese hasn't chosen to close that school yet, those kids still get a subpar education. Mm. And so the sad reality in America, and, and like I said, I, I'm one of those people when it comes to race and black and white, I don't sugarcoat it. I don't tiptoe around the issue. The sad part is that being black in America is hard. And it's rough. And whether you go to a public school or whether you go to a Catholic school, if it's not a Catholic school that's fully supported and funded because of the neighborhoods that it's in, it, there's still a problem. That being said, do I think that the Black church denominations and Black churches need to have their own schools? I think they could. Keyword could. Again, let's keep in mind mm -hmm. that historically, Black churches acted as a schoolhouse for our children. The sure. first HBCUs came out of the basements of church. Um, Morris Brown University, which is on the hashtag hard reset. So Dr. James, if you see this, um, Kevin James has done an amazing job at Morris Brown. And they just had a, an event recently in the last two or three weeks where the AME church for the district that they, they belong to cut them a check for several thousand dollars. Why? Because Morris Brown Church came out of the Morris Brown College came out of uh, the AME Church. When you look at oh, there is a school in Arkansas. I can't think of what school it is. Nevertheless, when my goddaughter was applying to schools three years ago, she got accepted there. When I called the financial aid department to determine what tuition would look like, how much she might have in financial aid, what the scholarship options are, and the admissions gentleman I was speaking with began to break down the numbers to me. And I said, okay, well, she still may not have that amount. This is what it is. He said, well, we'll make sure she goes to school. 
And I said, well, excuse me, what does that mean? Like I went to a PWI, I have four degrees, none of them from HBCU. And no one ever said, well, we'll make sure you graduate. Right. Never said, right. was never said, okay. No tuition person ever told my mother that when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a foreign concept to me. And, you know, he told me the history he said, well, uh, so-and-so university was started by four, we're gonna say preachers of the AME church. And he said, and they started the church to make sure that black kids back then who had were coming, not even a generation removed from enslavement or before enslavement ended in this country, that they had access to higher education. And so they, they live through their mission today, which is to make sure that black kids are educated. So if there's a child that goes to their school who wants to go to their school and get an education, they'll make sure it happens. Mm -hmm. these institutions came out of the black church. And so we're capable of having our own educational systems. There are black churches that do. Um, my, some of my siblings went to Emmanuel Christian church, um, Christian church on the South side of Emmanuel Christian school, but Emmanuel Christian church is church on the South side of Chicago. The school has since closed, but, they had their own preschool through eighth grade program. We're capable of it. We can do it if we put our minds to it. But what we cannot do is carry over the same vestiges and grievances to a Black run educational system that Ooh. exists Come on now. in the church. And so you can't have somebody who's been principal for 50 years right. and you haven't cultivated the, the, the school such that when that person retires, hopefully, and or dies, they haven't been developing a next generation and a generation after that. Because then they close and we're right back where we started. We can't have a school system that promotes people based on nepotism. Now, ooh, I am not ooh. suggesting... Oh, oh, oh you stepping all in it. <laughs> well, it, it's in the book, right? The, these are questions that I ask, like, how was your pastor chosen? And somebody put, what did they tell me? I think, believe, I believe somebody's response was, well, his, his son's going to become pastor, or we don't have a plan. I asked, do you have a succession plan? Yeah, the pastor's son will become chapter. No, we don't have a succession plan, right? Um, if we were on Zoom, I would pull up the PDF from my publisher and go to that chapter and show you where they said it. It's not me. It's not my opinion. I didn't say any of it. I don't give I don't give an opinion in the book. Um, so it's not about what I think. It's about what the members of the church think. And that was very important to me was to be able to hear what members were saying. You know, I intentionally people like, oh, well, did you did you have a lot of pastors? No, I didn't want pastors. I didn't want the trustee board chairs of every church participating because if you ask them, they're going to tell you they think they're doing great. I, I don't, I need real data, people. Like, I need to know what the people in the pews. Now, that doesn't mean I did not have any ministers. I think there was a couple of people who were pastors and there were people who were AME and Baptists and Kojic and non-denominational. And I had people from 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so although my sample size was small, relative to the sample population, it was diverse. Um, and, and so, yeah, we could have an educational system 
But that doesn't have to be the answer to us filling the gap. Mm. It so could be, but it doesn't have to be. be. Because let's look at it this way. If we were to, say, solve the underachieving problem and child, solve the educational inequity problem by building and operating our own schools, then we have to come up with capital and the funding. And we already know that Black businesses, especially Black female-owned businesses, are the most underfunded businesses in America. Mm. And so where are we getting the money from? Mm. The I government, my tax dollars pay for these folks to go to school. I get taxed in Boone County for these children to go to Battle High School, uh, go to some middle school. I don't have any kids. But I'm still paying for people's children. So let's send them to the best either public schools they can afford or pay for if that's what we choose to do. And I'm, I'm all for pay for education. But it doesn't mean we can't fill the gaps. It doesn't mean we can't have tutoring programs. It doesn't mean we can't have Saturday academies. It doesn't mean that during Sunday school, we can't say, okay, everybody give their report. We can't say that we don't have like a parents as teacher situation in the church where we're checking in with the school. Hi, I'm the person's um, Sunday school principal and they came home with a D this week. I'm trying to help them figure out, or hey, let's have parent teacher conferences after, after Sunday service. Jamal said that he has a D in English. Why does he have a D in English? As a parent, is this? can you not help them? Maybe the parent is dyslexic. Maybe the parent didn't graduate. Maybe they're teaching that new math, which is base 10, that none of us my age know how to do. And even the young folks, my, my baby sister teaches math, and she's 22, and she's like, the base 10 thing is dumb, right? So maybe it's the fact that none of us know how to do base 10, and we need to find some other help for this baby. I uh, I had the guy on for all this math, so he will probably push a pushback on on that. And he's pretty dope. So um, he was on um, earlier um, this year. Um, but um, what I hear you saying is that the wraparound services, because that's what we say in like education, the wraparound services, which may be parent support, student yep. support, could be the actual uh, entry point. Um, because it was a, a year or so ago. I was asked to speak um, to a group of parents and it was at a church. A church paid me to come in mm -hmm. talk to parents. And it was really about explaining some education things to them and explaining essentially that parenting is an action word and you got to do things. Um, Just like love. Yeah. Like you got to, you got to actively get involved. Your kid is not through osmosis. It's going to do the things and it's going to be hard um, and you're going to have to stick to it. And it was interesting to me. Because uh, when I first got this reach, I'm like, you want me to come in and talk? Yeah, I'm there. Like, that, that's not an issue for me. But I'm like, man, I wish there was more organizations like that that were reaching out to say we're trying to support parents or we're trying to support kids. Or we got all these kids. We checked report cards. We asked them to bring that to Sunday school. And nobody's passing reading. Do, do, do you have a program? Can we help with the? So I think some to, to some of your point is just like, the church serving the community, talking to the people, getting information about what they need. Because I think a lot of times externally people do things to the black community. It's like, we're going to have this backpack drive and maybe no one needed backpacks that year. And they actually uh, needed an iPad because the schools have all these 
um, practice things online and they don't got an iPad at home. That's actually the drive that we actually needed you to do, not for another book bag. But you did the book bag thing because you've been doing the book bags for 50 years and it was founded by Sister Hazel who found it and we just can't not do it because it's tradition. So that, um, uh, that that part. So we, we, we discussed that in the book too. Like understanding what's tradition versus understanding what is culture. And I had, I think the last podcast I did on Soul Thursdays, he asked me that question. He said, so what's the difference between tradition and culture? I said, okay. And, and I read them the definition of what culture was. And I, I mean, I could read you guys the definition because I, I made, I had to take three definitions from three various scholars to combine, to give me the holistic definition that I truly wanted for people to understand who and what the black church is, not just to America, but globally, and not just to blacks, but America as a whole and globally. Culture includes the way we speak, the way we think, our language, our symbols, our music, what we wear, that's culture. Tradition is like you said, Sister So-and-So started giving out backpacks on April, on August 2nd, back in 1952, until the day she died, and we're going to honor her by giving out backpacks every year on August 2nd. Okay, that's tradition. Cult, the cultural aspect of that is us meeting a need. That's the cultural part. It's meeting a need. What we have to do is, and, and here's the part that I did not say earlier. Before I say that, because I don't want so to forget. Your personal, so talking, your personal yeah, my per, I'm, yeah, I'm going to get back to that personal. And it's not just me. But I'm going to get back to the less researched opinion, so to speak. Well, no, not really. It is researched. It's ageism. So I'm going to put a pin in ageism, though, for just a second. But we're talking about, you know, we give away book bags and maybe book bags aren't the answer. And maybe the answer is not as simple as a wraparound service of having tutoring. And I agree that we need more than that. The digital divide is real. I was explaining to someone about COVID. Um, all the COVID research shows that Black and Brown communities uh, were most proportionally affected by COVID academically, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I'm not saying it's not true. It is true. I said, but do y'all realize what they're telling you? They're telling you what we already knew. We're already disproportionately affected. We were already underperforming in those communities that they're going out and researching. They're not going to high-performing communities with Black people. They're going to the, as we like to say, poor, broken, disgusted. They're going to the underfunded. They're going to the schools that have one teacher and 40 kids and no teacher's aid. They're going to the school that every kid in that school is on um, lunch assistance. Those are the schools they're going to. And what further compounded that was the digital divide because those kids either don't have working computers at home or they can't afford the internet. And so they couldn't do their assignments because they didn't have the technological assistance. So how as the church do we collaborate and meet the needs of the communities? We build computer labs. We have computer labs that are open every day after school between 3 p.m. and 8 p.m. and open on the weekends from 10 to 2 okay, well, we don't have anybody who can be there because we don't have a full-time secretary. Another part of the book, a different subject. We won't get to it today. You're right. Most Black churches don't have secretaries full-time. That's another problem. Again, that's in another chapter. 
But you got somebody who goes to the church who's retired. Mm. That same person who's still running the kitchen ministry is still driving the van or still doing that. Well, let them oversee the computer lab. Well, they can't help because they're not technologically astute. I get it. But you have a high schooler whose mama wants to keep them off the streets. Mm. Let them be the technical assistant. Give them a title so they can put it on their resume so that when they get ready to apply for college or get a job, they can say they were the technical assistant lead at so-and-so church for the educational development program. Mm. That's how we meet the needs of the community in this day. And again, that's not every church that's not doing it. I'm sure there's plenty of larger churches with more money who are doing it well. And so the question becomes, how do we meet the need in, in the most underserved communities. That's where we have to go to places like Dell and HP and Apple and say, hey, we're in this community. We are trying to get these kids. We need 10 laptops. That's when you write these local companies. I used to work for a telecom company um, located in the city where I live. And it's based out of Missouri. They did grants for schools and nonprofit organizations so that if they could not afford the full price of the internet, they would give them a reduced price or give it to them for free. But, and now we're going to get back to the pen in it. This is what has been observed by myself as well as other people. There's ageism in the church. When I ask the question regarding, you know, the age of executive leaders, age of pastors, how old were you when you took on this responsibility or did you feel like you had a position as a leader, as a youth? The resounding answer is we don't appreciate the young folks. Mm. We don't appreciate people under 60-ish years old and all of those over 60-ish. Here's the two-edged sword. It's not just the ageism but it's the educational component. Mm -hmm. Some of us still don't accept those of us who have ascended to these higher heights of education. Mm -hmm. We don't feel like it takes all of that to serve God. Mm -hmm. But in the world we live in today, it takes all of that to serve God. Because if serving God means serving your community, mm -hmm. then in order to serve my community, I need to know how to do budgets. I need to know how to set up stuff online. We're down the street from a school and the kids walk by every day. We are here praying and it's good to pray. But what if we opened up our door so that the 15 of them who didn't have computers at home could come in and use? If we have five computers, that's how we, we meet the needs in the ever-changing world, right? Um, I'm not, we were having this conversation before we got on, you know, right? I'm not real big on TikTok. Mm-hmm. But you see plenty of people, Jamal Bryan gets on, on Twitter or X or whatever we want to be today. Right. Every morning, records his morning prayers. Uh, I get notifications every time T.D. Jakes drops something on X, formerly known as Twitter. Um, you, you, you see plenty of pastors, Keon Henderson, splicing together things on TikTok. Um, you know, when I got a notification, I think it was two nights ago from Facebook when Marvin Sapp went live at Chosen Vessel. Chosen Vessel does Bible study on Tuesdays. I think it's weird, but that's just because, you know, 
every church I ever went to. Why they do it on a Tuesday? The first right. time I got the notification, it threw me off. But chosen vessel goes through on Tuesdays. You know how I know? Because I get a notification. And so we have to get out of the mindset of some pushback that the research shows me and that I've observed is that in that megachurch space, right? Because Chosen Vessel is considered a megachurch. Potter's House mm-hmm. is a megachurch. New Birth, those are megachurches. They operate like businesses, but our smaller churches operate like the black church. We mm-hmm. have to find a good balance. I'm not saying that people at Potter's House or New Birth or House of Hope or any of those churches are not really saved. Salvation is not up to me. I don't own a heaven or hell for anybody to get into. Just like I don't work for the IRS and I don't have a a tax system for you to pay me a dime, penny, a quarter or a nickel. However, what I do know is that there has to be more of an integration of business practices. Yeah. Into our smaller churches, even churches that are 800, 1,000 people that are not, are not like super small. I know people who go to those size churches and they say they still don't operate. One person um, who's a church administrator, they have a leadership conference every year. OK, I'm a leadership subject matter expert. And so whenever people tell me they're having a leadership conference, I want to know. What's that entail? What does it look like? Because I want to know if we're really talking about leadership, especially church. Right. She said, essentially, we come together for two days. We have like two or three preachers and some. Okay, so that's not a leadership conference. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Why? why? Yeah. And I mean, you have raised so many uh, great questions for us to really think about. You know, what business practices should we be implementing? And regardless, I mean, when people start their own business and they're they're entrepreneur, because just in a moment, she's going to tell you all about the wonderful things she does. I mean, you got to have business practices if you're a business of one. Um, So you I'm so glad that you have added to the body of research and you've added to the body of research being a black woman, because we need more research about us by us. So with that being said. Um, Dr. Randolph's going to tell you a little bit about her work and what she does and how you connect with how you can connect with her. All right. There are like 5,000 ways it seems to connect with me these days. If you want to find me on social media, there are two uh, LinkedIn accounts. You can either get me at Dr. Condicia Randolph, comma, M.A., comma, MPA, that's my professional one. Or you can hit my author's page, which is just Dr. Condicia Randolph. I am on both both of them. Um, nobody handles the pages but me. I'm also on Instagram as Dr. Condicia Randolph, as well as Facebook as Dr. Condicia Randolph. And again, there's both personal and professional pages. If you want to make contact with me, if you need leadership and org development help, want me to do training, come to the church, you can email me at drcondicia at gmail.com. Condicia is spelled just like on the screen there. You can also visit my consulting firm's website, which is Finer Consulting. It's HTTPS colon backslash backslash Finer Consulting Service, no S, dot com. Um, you can book a, a consultation on there. The consultation is free for the first one. It also gives you an outlay of what our different services are. Now, if you would love to purchase the book, and I know everybody does, I'll give you a version of what it looks like. This is the hardcover. Hardcovers 
and soft covers are available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, other online retailers, thrift books. I saw somebody bought a couple on eBay. So wherever your heart desires, it is the Black American Church Leadership Dispensation and Challenges. If you don't want to remember all of that, if you type my name in Amazon or in Google, it will take you to a location where you can purchase the book. So I hope that I've added to your understanding. I hope I've added to the body of literature and I hope I've given everyone some things to think about and to take away with them. And again, hit me up. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it because there are solutions. And for those of you guys who might be saying, oh, she just pointed out all the problems in this book. I'm not buying a book because it's full of problems. Spoiler alert. There are recommendations in the book as well. Um, and so it's a practical guide to leadership. Well, Dr. Candicia Randolph, you have been a phenomenal guest. You have shared so much knowledge with me that I uh, didn't personally know. And you also have raised us to a call of action. Uh, what do we do and what more can we do? And whether you're listening for a mega church, whether you're a small church, whether you're not in the church, whether you're in the community, I think every box that you're in, I think we all can do more because our kids, our community, our society um, is worth it. Um, so please connect with Dr. Randolph and all the places um, that she mentioned. Buy the book and leave a review because authors, they love you to leave them a review. It helps them to continue their work. And I'm over here. I'm rooting for you as you continue your research um, because I hope for you that this is a beginning of a path of like getting us um, with these leadership gems uh, because we need that. We need solid leadership um, foundation. So I always like to give love to people who are doing the work because um, this work is not easy, um, but this work is definitely needed. So I appreciate um, the work that you're doing and um, how you're adding to the body of research because you we all know that research is needed to get that, that needle uh, to move a little bit forward. And to the audience, we will see you. Um, well, I'll see you with a new guest on our uh, next episode. <laughs>